The scripture this morning is from Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Earn this. Some of you may have seen the movie Private Ryan, a classic World War II film. Private uh, James Ryan is the last surviving brother of four, three of whom have been killed in combat, and he's a paratrooper who's trapped behind enemy lines after the D-Day invasion in Normandy. And Tom Hanks plays Captain Miller, who uh, survives the, the horrible brutality of landing on Omaha Beach, barely recovers, and then is ordered to take his squad and go find this paratrooper Ryan who's trapped behind enemy lines so that they can save him and then this mother back home won't have to hear that all of her sons have been killed. So Ryan takes his squad of men and uh, through intense firefights and uh, sneaking around behind uh, the Germans and uh, close battles, they, they finally manage to find this private Ryan and link up with him. But Almost every one of Miller's squad is killed in the effort, and Miller himself is shot, and as he's dying, he says to Ryan, earn this. And then we fast forward 40, 50 years to Private Ryan, now an old man, kneeling in front of Captain Miller's gravestone in the cemetery in Normandy. And he says, I've thought every day about what you said. I've, I've tried to live a good life. I, I've, I've done my best. I've, I've tried to earn what you did. I've never forgotten it. And, and he falls down, overcome with emotion, and his, his wife rushes to his side. And, and with tears in his eyes, he says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. And you realize that for 50 years, this man has been carrying the weight of, of what Miller said to him. Earn this. Make yourself worthy of this sacrifice. And we come to this passage in Philippians where Paul says, only this, this one most important thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And maybe there's something in us that just responds to movies like Saving Private Ryan and maybe just our own sense of obligation or duty and, and maybe we wonder, is that what Jesus is saying to us here? That we're gonna stand before Christ and, and say, was I a good enough Christian? I, I tried my best. I, I worked really hard. Was I a good enough person? Is, is that what Paul's getting at here? 
that Jesus is saying to us like Captain Miller, earn this, be, be worthy of the sacrifice that's been made for you. Paul says, this is the most important thing. Only this, my last kind of concluding, not knowing if I'm going to see you again or uh, if I'm going to be executed. This is what I want you to focus on. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What does that mean to, to be worthy of the gospel? I think we need to think about what that word worthy means because it can have different meanings, right? It can either mean merit or it can mean value. It could mean live in a way that merits what God has done for you. Prove to God that you're worthy of Jesus' sacrifice. Work hard, earn what Jesus has done for you to, to prove that you deserve him to die for you. And if that's the case, we've got a problem because that basically conflicts everything else the Bible says about the nature of the gospel and the nature of God. That we can't earn it. We can't deserve it. There's nothing that we could do to merit God's patience, kindness, love, forgiveness. So as we come to this passage, what we need to do is make sure we understand Paul is talking about value, not merit. He's saying, let your life reflect the worth of Jesus Christ. Let the way that you live align with, demonstrate the value that God has poured out on you through his son. Let the way that you live, the choices that you make, the way you spend your time and your money, the, the things that you get angry about the things that irritate you, the things that you're willing to fight for, the things that you're willing to sacrifice for. Let that reflect the gospel, the worth of Jesus Christ. Because we all do that. We all assess worth. We all determine what something is worth all the time. And then the second thing we do is we in we assess, we determine how much we're willing to invest for that thing. I mean, all day long we're doing this, right? We determine what something costs or how much it's worth, its value, and then am I willing to pay the price for it? Is this bottle of shampoo worth $15 or is the store brand good enough? Do I want to pay $9 a month for Netflix? Is it worth getting that amount of stuff? Is this friendship worth my effort? Is it worth me, when I'm frustrated in this situation, to invest self-discipline and self-control so that I don't respond with anger, or cynicism, or ugliness? Is reading the Bible worth my time? See, your life, my life, our lives are all about measuring the worth of something and determining what we're going to invest to have it. Whatever I value determines what I will invest my life in. Does that make sense? The problem is I get invested in things sometimes that really are not worth what I'm putting into them. I think back to when our kids were younger and uh, we as parents, like many of you, have experienced the horror and the terror of science fair projects. We did not ask for science fair projects. 
We did not want science fair projects, and yet our kids came home and said, we have to do a science fair project. And so they would start off with some idea, and we'd help them figure it out, and they'd you know, start running some experiments, and then they'd get bored or frustrated halfway through, and I don't want to finish it, and, you know, and I, with regret, can still remember times where I'm like getting angry at this kid. You've got to finish this project. Because just getting this stupid project done at that moment, I valued more than being kind and patient with my child. And then, you know, the, the kids would finally slap something together and Amelia would look at it and, and she's giving me permission to share this. Uh, Amelia cares a lot that it, that it looks good, that it gets presented well. So she would go in and either hound them to make it look really nice on the foam board or go in and fix it herself. I think Amelia won more science fairs than our kids ever did. <laughs> and reflecting on it, she said, if I'd known science fair was part of the deal, we probably would have had fewer kids. <laughs> also true. We misjudge the value of things. We give them a greater financial value or emotional value or relational value than they really are worth. Whatever I value determines what I invest myself in, what I protect, what I get angry about, what I build my life around. So how is that going? I mean, if you look back over the last week, the last month, the last year, and you looked at where you spent your money and where you spent your time and what things got you angry and, and you know, what things somebody said on the internet you had to respond to, Does that reflect the worth of Jesus Christ in the gospel? Where does that show up for us? Where have your money and your time gone? When your mind goes into neutral, what do you think about? What do you worry about? What do you dream about? What is it that you are investing yourself in? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul says, let your manner of life reflect the worth of Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for us to reconcile us to God, to redeem us, to bring us into his family, to make us part of his mission. Let your life display the worth of the gospel. Maybe we'd better just say, I, I kind of threw this out in our pastor's discussion this last week, live worthy to the gospel. That's horrible grammar, right? I can English good. But maybe that's a better way of communicating what Paul's getting at here. Let your manner of life, let your conduct, he says, align with the value of the gospel. It's an interesting construction in the original. It, when Paul says similar things in other letters, he simply uses the word for law, walk. Let your walk, let your life align with the gospel. Here he uses this interesting word that uh, literally means to behave as citizens or live out your citizenship. And, and he's essentially saying what he's going to expand in chapter three, that our way of life, our priorities, our values are shaped by loyalty to King Jesus and to his kingdom and his kingdom values, which are different from the ones that we sort of inherit and live in, in this world. We live out a heavenly citizenship with different priorities. And Paul is saying the surpassing value of Jesus Christ in the gospel calls for us to arrange our lives, our values, our priorities, our choices to reflect 
that worth, to, to live worthy of the gift that we've been given, to live out the value of Christ. Because when we see the worth of Christ, it, it shows up in our lives. And so then Paul goes on to explain, give illustrations, examples of what that looks like. What does a life worthy of the gospel look like? And he's going to give us four things here in this passage that I want us to look at this morning. First, he says there's a commitment, a commitment in the struggle. Look at what he says in verse 27. So again, whether I come and see you, whether I don't make it back to you, that I would hear that you are standing firm, that you are committed, that, that you have drawn a line in the sand and said, this is where I will stand and I will not be moved from my commitment to Christ. Our son, uh, older son Ben just competed in a triathlon. Uh, not, not an Ironman, that's for uh, really crazy people, really intense, uh, committed people. Ben did an Olympic level triathlon, he's not an Olympic athlete, but it, what that means is it's a 1,500 meter swim or a mile swim, a 40K bike ride, which is about 24 miles, and then a 10K run, six miles after that. All at the same time, like in, in one space of time. And he decided, even though he was already in good shape a few months ago, that he, he really wanted to train for this. So he worked, he sweated, he practiced, and, and he ended up doing really well. He finished third in his age group, which was awesome. He finished like 30 out of 140 competitors or something in, in the whole event. He ran across the finish line, and he said he was just exhausted. He called me afterwards. He said, I've never been so sore in my entire life. But he said the physical part of it was not as demanding as the mental part. Because he said this was two hours and 42 minutes of continuous high energy output. And there was the constant temptation to slack off, to slow down, to take it easy. At one point he said he was like literally standing up on the bike pedals to go up this hill. And, and everything in his body wanted him to just say, just get off and walk the bike. Just slow down and, and walk this hill. And he said, I couldn't think about it. If you start thinking about how you're feeling, that shapes what you end up doing. So I had to think about something else. I, I was singing songs to myself. I was reciting verses. I was thinking about the finish line. And that's what helped me get the commitment to not stop short. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ is marked by perseverance, by endurance, by simply a commitment to not give up, to not turn back, Paul says. Because Christ will never give up on me. And the goal that he has set before us, Christ himself, is worth it. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, said to, to strike the first blow is not the battle. To start in the race is nothing. Many start and fail to finish. To hold out to the finish line is the point. Some run well at first, but hardly have enough breath to keep pace. And so they turn aside for a little comfortable ease and do not get on the road again. I don't have it in me to run this race but I need the commitment to trust Jesus for the strength to endure. This command, stand firm, appears more than a dozen times in the Bible. Because that means 
God recognizes we're going to want to not stand firm. We're going to get into situations where it's hard and we want to throw in the towel on our job, on our marriages, on our, on our kids, on relationships, on trying to reach those neighbors or family members that just seem hardened to hearing about Jesus. And Paul is saying, don't give up. Don't give up. Because God is at work in you and, and through you. Make a commitment, Paul says, that reflects the commitment God has made to you and the seriousness of the worth of the gospel that says, I won't quit. I'm not going to turn back. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to give up on my family, my friends, my neighbors. I'm not going to quit praying for them. I'm not going to quit looking for opportunities to share the gospel, to tell people about the good news of Christ, even if, even if. A life worthy of the gospel reflects a commitment, a commitment in the struggle. But we don't do that alone, because the second thing he points out is a, a cooperation for the cause. We cooperate together. I want to hear, he says, I, I, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I mean, how many times just in that one verse does Paul talk about cooperation and unity and working together side by side, one mind? This word striving is a unique word too. It comes from the Greek where we get our word athlete and athletics. And he puts a prefix in front of it that says athleting together, essentially. It's, it's like a picture of a you know, running back straining to get over, over the goal line with the football. Uh, you know, sort of like the Colts are struggling to do, I guess. But Sorry, maybe, that, maybe that's a low blow. Don't, don't hit them when they're down. It, it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of a maximum effort for the sake of the gospel in the world. And, and he's saying that we're doing that as part of a team. We're individual units, but we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We don't go out on our own. We're part of a family. We're part of a community that does this together. I mean, that, that's so clear here that we are striving with one another. We come to faith in Christ for ourselves, but not by ourselves. Christianity is a team sport if I can put it that way. I may not get to make the shots. I, I may be the water boy. I, I may be you know, making the assist so that someone else does the thing that needs to be done. What difference does it make as long as the cause is being advanced and we're cooperating together? There's an element of striving together to our life in the gospel now, we've all been in situations where we know what it is to strive against one another, right? Like, it's my turn to be on the computer. It's, I want the last piece of pie. I, I, you know, I want to hear the music that I like, or, you know, I want to pick out the color of the carpet, or what songs we'll sing, or, you know, what ministry or what announcements gets promoted. You know, I, I want to decide this. I, it should be about what's important to me. We, we know what that's like, right, to strive against one another. Paul is talking about striving with one another together. He's saying that things that are, you know, a matter of preference or opinion 
or what I would like to have happen are less important than us coming together for the sake of Christ and his gospel advancing. So how do we do that? What is it that makes that even possible? Paul says, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, when you see the faith in the New Testament with that that article, it usually is not about our individual faith in Christ. It's usually talking about the faith, the, the collection of all the beliefs that go into our understanding of the nature and character of God and who we are and why we need a Savior and what God has done to send a Redeemer to rescue us and reconcile us and and His plan to unite all things under the glorious, gracious rulership of Christ. That's the faith. And that's the thing that can actually unite us, isn't it? Because we come from different backgrounds. We're different colors and sizes and ages and education levels and and interests, and abilities, and, and, and things that are important to us, and, and different issues that matter to us. And those things all matter, but the only thing that can ultimately unite us is the faith of the gospel that we are striving for, that together this is our commitment to God's Word, to who Jesus is, and why He has come, and how people need to know Him. That's what unites us. And and put all of this together, and I think what Paul is getting at is saying we come together and we lay aside our personal preferences and agendas and, and opinions and we join hearts and hands and using all our resources, we want to go to spread the gospel by all means possible to everyone. Striving together to see that happen. You probably heard the saying, you know, you go faster alone, but you go farther together. And I think that's what Paul is echoing here. Going fast is great, but what really matters is going farther and doing it together, because that's a reflection of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what his people look like. Don't go alone. Set aside your preferences for Unity and partnership with others that that reflect Jesus' priority. It's a life that's worthy of the gospel. And it would be great if in doing that, you know, everything was easy and we didn't have any problems. But of course, that's not the way it is. Paul says a life worthy of the gospel also experiences a continuity, a connection in suffering to all our brothers and sisters, and ultimately back to Jesus. Look at how Paul puts it here in verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. You see how Paul's saying there's a continuity, there's a connection Just as Christ suffered and died for us, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking the afflictions of Christ. You've seen how I suffered. You saw how I came to Philippi, how I was thrown in prison, how there was a riot in town, the opposition that that I endured. And, And now I'm still experiencing a version of that, now being imprisoned somewhere else for the sake of the gospel. And you're engaged in that same conflict too, Paul says. 
a conflict to, to go out in a world that on the one hand wants the blessings in the life of God, but doesn't also want to acknowledge him as Lord and King. And that's going to bring us into conflict with the world. Before we dig into that, there's something interesting going on here. Paul says in the beginning of the verse, it's been granted to you, it's been graced to you, given to you, he says, to believe in Christ. Oh, what a wonderful reminder and how important that is for us. The beauty of the gospel, that apart from God sending His Holy Spirit, I am dead in sins, lost and wandering, blind, unable to see the ugliness of my sin, the beauty of Christ, the glory of God, the hope of heaven, the confidence in Christ. But God has graciously made it possible for me to see and believe and treasure all of those things in Christ. And we say, amen, what an awesome gift that is. Thank you, God. And there's another gift I have for you, God says. It's also been granted that you should also suffer for his sake. And we don't get nearly as many amens for that line. Right? It's sort of like one of those ugly white elephant gifts, you know, that you come home from a Christmas party with. Like, you know, sort of like one of these. This is uh, an amazing artwork uh, that has been rotating around through our guest services team for the last number of years. And uh, you can't breathe on it very much because these weird little fluffs fly off and, uh, and it's got glitter that gets everywhere. And so every year somebody packages it up and somebody else gets to take it home. And I've gotten stuck with it and haven't been able to get rid of it recently. And you sort of look at it like, okay, that's not really what I wanted, and I don't really have anything to do with that, so I'd be glad, God, for you to give that gift to someone else. That's what suffering is like, kind of. I mean, that's a small illustration. I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. I don't like it, and I'd be perfectly happy for you to send it to someone else's home. How is it that Paul could actually say that suffering for Christ is a gift. I, I think we as generally prosperous, wealthy, secure Americans, we've been so blessed with material things that it becomes very easy for us to believe that is how God blesses us. That blessing equals money and status and security and prosperity and good educations for our kids and career advancement and health and uh, and nice cars, and not too many aches and pains, and, you know, that's what it means to be blessed. And, and so then it becomes counterintuitive to think that suffering could be a form of blessing, because having good stuff is being blessed. So having less good stuff means I'm not blessed, right? You know, it's maybe has something to do with our love of comfort. Because if I really get serious about striving together for the gospel and, and inviting people to know Jesus, that may bring ridicule, it may bring rejection, it may bring embarrassment, it may bring you know, being on the out socially, and, and that's uncomfortable, and, and nobody likes that, and we don't want it. 
And it's unlikely that we're going to be called on to risk our lives for the gospel, although who knows? It certainly is the reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But you might be asked to risk your reputation for the sake of the gospel. Or risk your convenience. Certainly you'll be asked to surrender your rights in following Jesus. Your, your right to yourself, your right to your money, your, your right to shape life the way you want to. And all of us, of course, are just going to go through the ordinary, normal suffering that life brings. Pain and loneliness and rejection and heartache and disease and, and all of it. And how we respond to those trials helps us see whether we value Jesus more than the things that might be taken away from us. Why is it a gift to suffer for Christ? Because nothing really reflects what we value like the way we respond to suffering. When God takes something out of our hands, it becomes real quick how important that thing is to us. Whether we are still able, like Job, to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, or whether we become angry and bitter and resentful and jealous. Nothing reveals what we really love, what we really treasure, like the way we respond to God taking something away from us. Because that tells us, do I still love God? Do I still praise Him? Is He still good? Is He still trustworthy? Even when He takes this from me, even when He gives me something I don't want. And if Christ is our greatest worth, our greatest treasure, our greatest value, then when he brings suffering to our lives, when he takes something away, we can say, yet I will still trust in him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not one good thing has he withheld from his servant. And then the worth of the gospel in that moment can be proclaimed more powerfully than us being here on Sunday morning in an air-conditioned room and singing praise songs to Jesus. I mean, that's beautiful. That's worship. But what really shows the worth of the gospel is when we get kicked hard in the stomach and things that we really love and are really important to us are ripped out of our hands. And we're able to say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. A life that reflects the worth of the gospel it says Christ is greater than money or health or success or recognition or affirmation or power or my preferences. But not to choose Christ brings its own kind of suffering too. And that's the last thing. Paul wants us to understand that, that a life that is worthy of the gospel it also reflects a confidence in the outcome. A confidence in the ultimate outcome, in the end. 
Back in verse 28, the beginning, Paul said, not being frightened in anything by those who oppose you, because this, your faith, your trust, your love in Christ, your continuing to follow Him in spite of opposition, is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. I love the sober realism of Paul, right? He, he does not sugarcoat it here. I've suffered, you're suffering, you're going to suffer. And what we do with it is incredibly important because it ends up revealing what we really value. So decide what's really important. If Jesus is important, then speak up and go ahead and, and don't be worried or frightened by those who will oppose you. Some people won't like your message. Don't let that stop you. Sooner or later, you're going to run into opposition. So what? Stand firm, he says, because you know the outcome. Jesus has guaranteed the outcome for you. If they hated him, they may hate us. Why would we expect anything different? You know, if, if you go out into the world and say, Jesus is the only way to the Father, they're going to say you're intolerant. If we go out in the world and say, you must be born again, people will say, you are some kind of a weird fanatic. If you say that the Bible, this is God's inerrant, eternal word, they're going to say, you are narrow-minded and ignorant. Is it worth that cost? Because Paul is saying they're identifying in that response to the gospel, whether they really love and want God or not. And God will ultimately judge them in the end for what they do with Jesus and whether or not they're willing to humble themselves and accept his gracious offer of life and forgiveness or whether they say, no, I don't want that. Now, Paul's clearly not saying, and, and Peter warns us, you know, don't expect any commendation from God if you suffer from being a jerk or a criminal. I mean, that, that's just common, right? Don't, don't do that. But if you suffer for the sake of Christ, you are blessed, he says. And, and even more blessed because you know that that opposition, again, not to us being angry, intolerant, hostile, ugly jerks, but that opposition to, to God speaking his word into our lives is like a signpost pointing in one of two directions. It's very serious stuff. Paul is saying, you're going to encounter opposition. Don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. Don't be frightened, he says. And, and then again, it's, I know we don't normally do all these you know, Greek things, but this is kind of a cool word too. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's sort of this image of like a, a horse being startled by a sudden noise. Or you know, maybe in our context, I'm sitting on the couch at home and I shuffle a paper and the cat freaks out and runs three rooms away. Right? Like I, you could have expected that. I mean, that happens occasionally. That's kind of what Paul is saying. Like, don't, don't be freaked out. Don't be surprised. Don't bug out that, you know, people are going to be hostile to Christ and to you because of it. When trouble comes, expect it and be calm, be confident, be courageous in it. 
Because here's the reason we have for that confidence. It's a clear sign. It's an omen, a, a, a promise, a divine promise of a guaranteed future of your salvation. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved because of what God has done in Christ and how you are working that out, living that out. And to their judgment, unfortunately, they will be judged eventually. And, and God says, don't worry about it. I will handle it at the right time. The worth of Christ shows up in our lives as a willingness to endure that kind of suffering and opposition and to be confident. To be confident, I, I don't have to get even, I, I don't have to straighten it out, God will do that eventually. And so we speak the truth in love without fear, we do it winsomely, we do it graciously, but we know even with that, we are going to encounter opposition. But that kind of persecution is a sign of God's approval. God's approval. Blessed are you when people revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for the sake of the gospel. The gospel then ends up giving us a totally different perspective on life, on value, on trials, on suffering, and on the confidence that we can have. I heard a story a while ago about uh, hockey player in, uh, I think it was the second period of the game, and he's not a very good player, you know, he's sort of a second line guy, and uh, he gets laid into the glass, like he's out cold. They take him back to the locker room, and uh, the trainer comes out and says, well, coach, bad news, this guy really got his bell rung. He doesn't even remember who he is. And the coach says, well, tell him he's Wayne Gretzky and put him back in the game. <laughs> and Paul's trying to remind us who we are who we really are. He's trying to call us to something beyond ourselves because we don't have this in us, right? But he's saying this is who you are and can be in Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, think about how we experience that. People in our lives that, that can call us to something higher and greater, a, a bigger vision, a larger purpose, a coach that says, guys, we are going to work hard. Ladies, we are, we are going to practice and do these drills and we can get all the way to the title game, if we work at it. I believe in you. You can do this. You know, a, a parent or a mentor who says, oh, I am so proud of you. I know that you can do this. I mean, think about that. A, a coach, a, a spouse, a boss, a, a sergeant, a captain can call us to, to a higher purpose, something that, that we feel I don't know if I can do that, but, but somebody says, no, that's who you are. That's, that's what you've been set apart for. We can do this. And as, as great as that is, that in itself can still just be another impossible burden like Captain Miller put on Private Ryan if it's not motivated and empowered by the gospel itself. Because it has to be Jesus not saying, earn this to us, but Jesus saying, I have earned it for you. It's paid. It's done. You don't have to pay me back. You, there's nothing for you to earn. There's nothing for you to prove. But now, out of what I have given you, live differently. Live in a way that shows the worth that I have put on you. 
and that I have given you and the worth that this message has for you and for everyone. And as we do that, we live a life that reflects the worth of Christ in the gospel. As we count the cost, as we cooperate together, as we live with confidence, as we go out with courage and, and we do that in a continuity of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Let your life reflect the worth of Christ in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this word to us that says, in some ways, confronts us and says, I know you're capable of better. This isn't you. Out of what Jesus has done, live in a way that doesn't demonstrate your worth, but the worth of Christ. Well, Father, who, who is worthy of the gospel? None of us. None of us are deserving. Nobody merits or earns your blessing, your forgiveness, your love, and yet it's available to all who will receive it. But what is worthy of the gospel? Everything. Our priorities, our dreams, our hopes, our energy, our self-discipline, our time, our money, our lives. Father, help us to live out the surpassing value of Christ. For to live is Christ. May people see that in us and may we experience it. We pray in Jesus' name.